Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. We're recording this just before the big kickoffs on Sunday. A lot of important issues to resolve, a lot of money at stake, and more crucially, whether Palace finish ahead of Brighton. I mean, morally, we obviously are, but it's nice when the league table agrees, Kieran, isn't it? <laughs> Well, it's it's all really we've got to look forward to for on today. So uh, may, I'd like to say may the best team win, but I'm far too shallow for that. Well, also you should say may the better team win, Kieran, because it's a choice of two. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, as you can tell by that grammatical correction, Kieran, I'm a donkey on the edge this morning because I'm I'm still I woke up outraged that Ukraine didn't win Eurovision. I'm just it's just Ali's just as cross that Iceland didn't win, and Ed's really happy because Italy did win with a shocking, terrible fake heavy metal and then we take it too seriously um, it's questions day Kieran but we have uh, one interesting news story before we get into them and it could be the first crack in the gambling dam that we have been predicting for some time yes this relates to Preston North End and uh, they they are currently sponsored by 32 Red who are also the sponsors of Derby County and, and they've sponsored some other clubs historically in the past mm. as well um, and that relationship is ceasing. Um, and looking at the comments coming from Preston, and, and this is something which I think some other clubs have hinted at at the past. We, we do have clubs such as Luton Town and Tranmere Rovers who take the view that uh, football sponsorship by the gambling industry is unhealthy mm. uh, and unethical, um, and, and therefore... Uh, they don't have anything to do with it. We've seen Everton move away from their gambling sponsors um, and, and now Preston are doing this. And, and, I, and I was talking to a, a commercial director of a of a football club who said there's a case for, for jumping before you're pushed oh. because if the government brings in legislation which prevents uh, front-of-shirt sponsorship and, and – if if they do, I think actually the gambling industry will think that it's got away with uh, got away with an awful lot because um, co- compared to the amount of money that the, the gambling industry spends on advertising on television and radio, front of shirt football sponsorship is is relatively minor, and also that many of the big players in in uh, in, in in the gambling industry, you know, the likes of Labrooks and William Hill and Paddy Power and so on, well that they don't have. Uh, individual club sponsorship as such so it, it makes zero difference to them um so so that's where we are um preston have made the decision um you know talking talking to this commercial director what he said was um for, for many clubs gam the gambling companies they might be the biggest payers in town but they're not the only payers in town mm. and by getting out at this stage uh, Preston are, are more likely to be able to sign a deal before the overall level of prices potentially drops if uh, legislation is introduced. Mm. I did know about those other clubs, but the introducing the story is the fourth crack in the gambling dam wouldn't have been quite as dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, questions, Kieran. And the first comes from Alex Scott. And Alex Scott asks, how is the money generated by radio commentary of football split? The BBC and TalkSport cover all the big games, but there is rarely 
any coverage of Leagues 1 and 2. Do clubs from all divisions receive a set amount each season? And how is it? If so, sorry. If so, how much extra revenue do the teams receive from a featured match? And of course, smaller teams will feature on BBC Radio Devon or BBC Radio Humberside or, in your case, West Sussex. But it is a good question. It, it is indeed. Um, there are uh, there are separate radio broadcasting deals from, first of all, the Premier League has one for uh, its rights, and it, it has seven packages, uh, seven, which of which uh, the BBC have four and uh, TalkSport have three. And, and all of that money goes in through, into a central spot, a central pot, should I say, and that is split equally um, alongside the, the money from the, the Premier League's uh, main sponsors, such as EA Sports, Barclays, Budweiser and Nike. Um, and, and that's worth £100 million a year in, in total uh, to the clubs in the Premier League. So they get, they get around about £5 million each. Now, trying to work out how much of that's coming in respect of radio um, isn't possible to determine that the Premier League are a little bit coy on that. Um, but uh, a, a you know, no, no disrespect, a, a big club such as Liverpool or Manchester United will actually receive the same amount as the smaller clubs in the Premier League. Mm. Um, and, and the reason for that is that the radio companies, the broadcasters, they do not dictate which matches are taking place in each individual slot. That's actually oh, determined right. by BT and Sky. So therefore, there's no merit payments as such from a radio oh, point right. of view. But when it comes to the EFL deal, um, and that is uh, that's an exclusive deal with Talksport. Again, that goes into a, a central um, a, a central uh, pool of money, and that is distributed. I'm having trouble hearing you. <laughs> if that was Finley, then Finley is really getting clever, isn't he? <laughs> he's, he's a very advanced dog. Yes. Yeah. Why? Is, why? <laughs> I, I, it's, I'm, it's slightly sinister. The fact that is it Siri or Alexa or both? No, this one's Siri. This one's Siri. All right. I know what you're like. I wouldn't put it past you to be seeing Alexa on the side as well. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> well Carry on. Talk well, Siri. Siri is my only company this morning yes. because. Because the Baroness is is dealing with the mother of all hangovers, um, and and is therefore I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> she doesn't know what Siri doesn't know what a hangover is. Okay, <laughs> was it was it a Eurovision party that uh, the Baroness was taking part in last night? Well, well no, because it was it was our first chance to go out for an indoor meal um, since uh, yeah. breakdown. So we went out for a um, a meal which lasted about three hours, and and finished with. Uh, uh, the, the Baroness appeared to be, you know, and I know nothing about alcohol. As you know, she she appeared to be drinking uh, Guinness from a cocktail glass, but she she told me that this was something called a Nespresso Martini, which looks remarkably similar. Now I've got absolutely no idea, Kevin, so I'll I'll have to leave it to the experts. Uh, it, it, knowing the Baroness, I would say it's more likely to be uh, an espresso martini, but you can, I can confirm. Happily drink Guinness from a cocktail glass if needs must. But <laughs> so, back to talk. Back to talk sport. Back to talk sport. Yes, um, talk, talk sport have the exclusive rights for radio um, on on a, in, in terms of a national deal um, with uh, the EFL, and that is split. Eighty percent of that goes to clubs in the championship. Twelve percent 
to League One and 8% to League Two. And then individual clubs will sign individual deals with uh, local BBC radio stations. But from my understanding, we are talking peanuts in in terms of Mm -hmm. the amounts involved. Uh, Ben Gardner says that Kieran mentioned recently that Premier League footballers use image rights as a way of avoiding income tax. I was wondering, says Ben, whether, as part of a solution to the current financial crisis, it would be feasible for a new tax to be imposed specifically on these forms of income and revenue. It seems reasonable that those who profited most during the fat years should be expected to contribute in the lean. I'm amazed, I'm amazed, Kieran, that producer guy allowed that sort of dangerous socialist thinking through his golden net. I, I, I really, he must have been concentrating on lighting his cigar when that question went through. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's an intriguing one. Um, mm. I, I do feel that uh, the football industry gets an unusual amount of attention in, in respect of uh, the amount of remuneration paid. If, if you take a look at the average club in the Premier League, it has a wage bill of £156 million. Mm. Now, if you compare that to you know, uh, one bank, um, such as Barclays, $8.1 billion, so it's, it's mm. uh, 50 times as many. Uh, Tesco's, again, $7.5 billion. So, so there, are, there are many, many other um, companies in the UK which have huge amounts of remuneration. And well, the, um, the, the, BBC and IT, the BBC and ITV for a start off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, you know, from, from talking to people who do work at the BBC, many of whom now have to go and set up their own supply companies. You know, and, and, and that's that's the case with many um, employers who, who are used people on a freelance basis. Mm. So, um, and all of these have tax implications. In, in terms of footballers, HMRC broadly say we are reluctant to allow you to have more than 20% of your remuneration going through um, as image rights. And mm. yes, that, that, can, uh, that can lead to a reduction in income tax base. But if, if we are going to do that, then I, th- I think we've got to take a look at the much broader issues of tax planning. Um, and, and to single out the football industry when mm. you know, c- compare, you know, I'm, I know people working in the world of finance who who have very very sophisticated means of, of course, uh, yeah, not not paying as much tax um, as they would do under alternative arrangements. So um, yes, could could the government bring in legislation? Yes, it could. Um, what would happen as a result of that? Uh, our silver-tongued friends would uh, get together, um, set up a WhatsApp group, and I can assure you they will run rings around the revenue. If, uh, mm. um, so you know, th- there, there is always a way to um, reduce tax paid, um, and I don't think that the football industry um, is, is, is one of the worst offenders um, mm. in respect of that. So could it be done? Yes, but I, I think it's. We, I think it's, we, it would be a sledgehammer to, to crack a nut to a certain extent, because the uh, much broader issue of 
tax avoidance on 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 a corporate and and also uh, in terms of those. I mean, Ben says you know there have been people that have profited or have been uh, become very wealthy on, on the back of uh, COVID and the pandemic. Um, I don't think they'll be paying huge amounts of tax because of the way the system works. Well, also, it goes right back to a subject we discussed, I think, in pod two or three, Kieran. It's a psychological aspect, and it's your friends in the financial industry. Um, People think it's fully deserving that they earn a lot of money, of course, and they think it's clever when they find ways of avoiding paying the full tax on it. People think it's vulgar when footballers and comedians earn a lot of money and they think it's outrageous when they, there's, it's just a difference in the way people are perceived in this country. And, and as you say, at the moment, more or less since Matt Hancock, um, yeah, right at the start of the pandemic compared footballers wages to PPE in a, in a totally useless comparison. There's been so much focus on footballers wages at a time when other people are on furlough, etc., And it is unfair, as you say, um, as a question from James talking of COVID, just James, no surname. Um, James says, were there any actual positives to buying a football club at a time when no fans were allowed and everything is still in a pandemic recession? Why would anyone make the decision to buy a club when the present is still pretty bleak and the future is uncertain at best? Um, I think it's if, if, if I was a billionaire, I think there was no better time to uh, buy a club. So perhaps you know, mm. a producer guy might be listening into this. <laughs> um, and, and the reason is is that we're operating in, in a depressed market. So you, you can uh. buy clubs at a discount, um, as, uh, you know, both in the UK but uh, in continental Europe. So the asking prices have fallen because existing owners are effectively willing to give some clubs away for a pound because it means that they're they're not having to write out that check every single week for significant losses. Um, so, so that's um, yeah, that's one benefit. You can buy a, a club at a discount, and then also from a recruitment and uh, retaining talent point of view, wage costs are depressed. So, especially in leagues one and two, um, you know, I'm, I'm hearing reports from agents saying, "Well, you know, the player wants to stay, but the club's saying you're going to have to go and take a, a significant pay cut," and and we're not getting the alternative offers that we might have had 12 months ago. So it, it's um, it's market forces. And, you know, mm. and just as it's market voice forces why some players in the Premier League are paid millions upon millions, it's also market forces that are driving down wages at the lower level. So you know, we, I think we have to accept it at, at, at all levels. Um, the transfer market uh, in the lower leagues will collapse uh, this summer. As well, um, you know, and, and I saw QPR's accounts come out yesterday. They spent fifty-five thousand um, pounds in a full season in the championship signing players. Yeah, you know, we're talking about a championship football club. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's, we're already starting to see the the, the financial forces come through. Um, so, I think there are positives. Um, you know, we have seen the the recent takeover of Sunderland. We've seen the recent takeover at Wigan. Um, you you can buy clubs relatively cheap. You can recruit players relatively cheap, especially if there's many players who are out of contract. Mm. Um, and uh, I think it's the Sunday Times uh, rich list is out today, and and the Forbes rich list has come out, and it said it it's never been a better time to be a billionaire because. <laughs> Um, there's there's an awful lot of additional wealth 
um, for, for those people that are operating in certain sectors of the economy um, who have benefited either directly or indirectly as a result of COVID. Mm. It turns out the guy is so wealthy, he's managed to buy his way off the Sunday Times rich list as well. So he doesn't want the publicity. Well, of course, I mean, the thing is as well, Kieran, you, you know, if, if you're a billionaire, it, it, you don't worry about Brexit or COVID because you're insulated by your money, aren't you? But it's the best vaccination of all, isn't it? A billion pounds when there's a pandemic going on. Um, ben Graham. <laughs> ben Graham says, imagine this scenario. It's 3 a.m. in a Blackpool nightclub and a lot. Oh, hang on. Wrong scenario. I turned over two pages. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, a player is in the last six months of his contract, so should be able to speak to another club. But say that player has a clause stating that once they pass X number of appearances, they get an extension at their current club. If that elusive X happens within the last month of the contract, how does that then impact on their ability to sign a pre-contract agreement to join another club. I don't like using impact as a verb, but it, it works there. And also, I prefer the 3 a.m. in a Blackpool nightclub scenario, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've, we've talked privately about how that one played out, Kieran. So let's, let's, stick, to, <laughs> yes. let's, let's stick to this to, to Ben's scenario, which is, which is an interesting. And, and first of all, I know this is more legal than financial, but it, again, this is one of those things that we all assume that, Every every player in the last six months of his contract is then free to speak to another club or, or do a pre-contract arrangement. Yes. Well, I mean, what would have to happen under these circumstances is that the club would have to trigger that um, contract extension. And we've seen that quite often at Manchester United, ah, okay. who, who have been... Who have had players who are coming towards the end of a contract where there is a there is a plus one option, um, and the club have said, "Well, you know, you have played the matches. We um, we're going to trigger that, and, and therefore you're now committed to the club." And and that could actually, you know, from a from a financial point of view, and, and I and I, I still feel genuinely uncomfortable about the way that we commodify football yes. players yes, um, yes. because you know we're supposed to be. Yeah, it's supposed to be free freedom of employment, but play, uh, clubs will do this um, in order to protect their own interests, um, with the view that if, uh, if if you are in the final six months of the contract, you can effectively walk away for nothing on a Bosman by by uh, get you know allowing the the player to to satisfy the conditions on the contract, triggering the contract extension. It means that. You might still the player might still leave in the summer, but this time the club gets a fee. So it, it is uh, it, it is an intriguing scenario, um, but uh, it, it would effectively prevent the player from being able to to walk away in the summer and get, of course get a higher signing on fee mm. from uh, the next club. Assuming, of course, that the player is the suit suitable caliber that he's going to be in demand. There, there will be many players, I can, I can assure you, again in the lower leagues, who would be absolutely delighted if the club had triggered um, these these conditions in contracts because it gives them certainty and remember that we're talking about young men many of whom have young families and mortgages and so on just like you know many other young people um, and it gives them a greater degree of certainty going forwards in terms of their own personal circumstances there's going to be an awful lot of players um, scrabbling around for relatively few positions over the course of this summer. Mm. Uh, James Rushmore has a question um, on a similar theme um, and James says lots of clubs loan players with an option or obligation to buy 
For example, my club, Norwich City, have an obligation to buy Ben Gibson and Demetrius Yanoulis. Now they're in the Premier League. But what would happen if they simply decided to ignore that obligation? Um, they they would get their asses sued, I think oh, is right, the right. Okay. technical phrase for this. Um, and um, what uh, what would happen is that you know the the, uh, the the original club would say this is a, this is an issue. Um, we've got a contractual obligation. You've you failed to do this. It would probably report them either domestically to the Football Association, the Premier League, or the EFL, um, and on an international basis, it would report them to FIFA. So um, th- I think there would there would be consequences. And also, um, I think the club itself would suffer reputational damage. You know, uh-huh. why, why, why sign up a player with a, a loan to, for, you know, effectively forced to buy on the basis of promotion if this club has a reputation for weaseling out of deals? You know, you, you'd, the word, word would get around. Um, and, and, and it wouldn't happen for a club like Norwich anyway, who, who in my view, are one of the most ethical clubs. Yeah. Um, in in football uh, in the UK, I, I suppose you could get some championship clubs who put a, a clause like that in a contract, not a hundred percent expecting to get promoted, and and it, then it comes as a surprise to them. Um, but then I suppose they can't argue they haven't got the money because they've just been promoted, so they've got one hundred and forty million quid, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah we, we we saw it at uh, at Brighton where we we loaned uh, Anthony Knockhart to Fulham. Yeah. Um, Fulham got promoted and they clearly didn't want him, but they had to go and buy him under the circumstances. And, and then he r- relatively quickly after that was loaned out to another club in the championship. Mm. So mm. Um, it's it, it's, a, it's a way of providing some protection for clubs that have just been relegated or who are in the championship that the worst case scenario is you pay a loan fee and the the... the the, the sort of the, the comfort factor is that if you do get promoted, yes, you've got to go and pay some money out, but the chances are you you can then start to move this player on yourself. Yeah, I, I still don't. I haven't forgiven Anthony Knockhart for that lucky, lucky goal he scored at Sellers when he beat two players and curled it in from twenty five yards. It, yeah, we thought it was a fluke as well. Yes. I, I did that when I was doing hands downs around the, uh, <laughs> the ground. Uh, Ed Payne has an old school club. I got I got quite nostalgic when I read this, Kieran, because as I say, it's a proper old school club question. Um, Ed says, as a Villa fan, when was the last time the club made a profit? We made losses every year under Lerner and nearly went bust under Z. So I reckon it must be 20 years since we made a profit. Is that some sort of record? Now, Kieran, I bet you loved researching this, didn't you? Oh, I, I was in absolute heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like a muck going through this. Um, well, first of all, Ed is absolutely correct. The last time that Aston Villa made a profit was in 2001. Wow. And they made a profit for the whole year of £138,000. Wow. Since then, they have lost money every year. And their average losses for the last 20 years per week, £588,000. Half a million pounds a week for 20 years when they've spent the vast majority of that time in the Premier League. Mm. Which is, you know, it, it, it just it's, it's incredible numbers, and that you know, Randy Lerner, Tony G, um, and also the new owners. I mean, the new owners have certainly backed the manager, um, and, and Villa's losses are significant. So, um, 
I, I think it's it, it's it's a really first of all it's, it's from yeah you know, from my point of question I absolutely love researching this, um, but it's further evidence that the the Premier League being paved with money mm. for all concerned is a myth. Uh, certainly, there will be major beneficiaries who who tend to be the the playing talent, and, and I've always said I I'm all in favour of young men earning large sums of money coming from working class backgrounds. What's what's not to like? I have no issue with that whatsoever. Mm. Um, but uh, the the idea that the Premier League is full of profit as well is is not the case. Well, you've answered my question already, which again shows how. We're getting too close because that's the <laughs> my one backup question. So they're going into a third season in the Premier League, and we still can't expect them to make a profit. That just—it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Well, it would be if I'd been doing this pod for eighteen months, because certainly eighteen months ago you would just go, "Well, of course they'd be making a profit. They're, they're about to go into the Premier League for the third time." Yeah, it's uh, it's it's Sir Alan Sugar's legendary prune juice yeah, yeah. Uh, comment is it has never been truer. Um, in, in the sense that as soon as additional revenues come into a club, then um, either the existing players and their representatives say, well, hold on, you know, we, we, we're the major, you know, we, we're the reason why people watch football, so yeah. therefore we have a bit more money. Uh, and also when you're recruiting players, they, their representatives will say, this is a Premier League player you're signing, so therefore you know, the expectations are X, X point X million per year, for my client, because that's that's the going rate, and, and the yeah. clubs, if if they don't sign the player, somebody else will on 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 a fairly similar um, wage level. So mm. um, it, it is uh, certainly at the Premier League level, the uh, the, the balance of of favour, and you, you know you 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 worked in HR yourself, you know that there's. Uh, in, in any negotiation, one party is normally in a stronger position than the other. In the Premier League, it's still it's still uh, leaning towards the players, whereas um, in the lower leagues, I, I think it's now switched towards the clubs. Hi, I'm Steve Lamarck, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Yeah, can you can you stop telling people I used to work in uh, HR, Kieran? It's a, it a long time ago, and it makes me sound like an accountant. I've, <laughs> my, my career has taken a much more glamorous turn in the last decades or so. Oh, absolutely, sorry, I, I'll, uh, I'll mention it again. <laughs> um, it's a bit like when when people bring up the subject to me. Used to, used to be a, a sex shop manager, um, and they thought it was far more glamorous than being an accountant. <laughs> and, and believe me, it was. <laughs> Well, yes, yeah, it's all right for you. You haven't done it. You've done it the non-traditional way. You've gone, you've shamed your family by going from running a sex shop to running being an accountant. Well, um, I, I, did, I didn't shame my family because I never told my mum. And the reason why I became an accountant was because I didn't want to bring shame. Uh, you know, when, when yeah, mum coming from a big Irish family, yeah, what's Kieran up to do these days? Well, he's selling vibrators for a living. So. Uh, <laughs> 
I bet Uncle Terry was ashamed when you became an accountant. Well, a legitimate one. Well, anyway. I've known, you know, known a few things about the books. It comes in very useful. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alan, Alan Marples has our next question, and it's um, an area we haven't explored before. Um, so thank you for that, Alan. Alan's question relates to players who open their own coaching academy. For example, my club, Sheffield Wednesday, have a local player called Liam Palmer who runs one. Will these be a personal brand funded by the players or do they feed into the club's academy? I remember as Kevin Keegan uh, opened and closed uh, an academy in Glasgow, I believe, didn't he? And, and said in an interview that one of the problems was it was people were confused as to where it lay within the sort of professional club system. So it's an interesting question. Yes. Um, as, I think as far as Liam Palmer is concerned, I think he's now he's 29, 30. So he's, he's looking potentially for a career beyond football. Hmm. Um, there's there's a lot of, of merit for starting to do some future planning. Um, his, uh, his, his, I think it's called the Liam, Liam Palmer School of Excellence. Um, it does appear on the Sheffield Wednesday website. So it could be that they, they're utilising his name. Um, I think a lot will depend upon the player himself because, again, you, you mentioned Kevin Keegan. I'm I'm old enough to remember the Bobby Charlton soccer schools in the summer, where it, it would the, the the player's name was used as a vehicle to uh, attract people, to attract kids to attend these mm. uh, these, these summer schools and and and, and similar. Um, I think what we what we might be seeing with somebody like Liam Palmer, he, he's working in conjunction with the uh, with Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, there is a separate company which has been set up, and Liam Palmer is the director. So I was I, I was going through company's house records this morning um, after uh, after the rush I'd had on the uh, the Aston Villa spreadsheet, um, <laughs> and uh, so so it's a company which has been set up recently. So he would appear to be sort of the independent beneficiary of it, but um, I, I think there's opportunities for him to work in conjunction with Sheffield Wednesday as well. Yeah, you, you would imagine Sheffield Wednesday coaches are probably helping out uh, there as well. And it's a useful way for the club to spot young talent as well, isn't it? Who may have slipped through the sort of more formal scouting recruitment now, I suppose. Um, and speaking of which, Reese Jones says that Bolton youth player Findlay Lockett has been linked with a move to Wolves. And he's a second-year scholar yet to sign professional terms with Bolton. So what kind of fee would Bolton expect to get in compensation? And how are these figures calculated for young players across all categories of academy? And this is um, this is a bugbear for, for many, many fans, Kieran, especially outside the Premier League, that they worry constantly about young players being taken away before they get to a situation where they can actually get a transfer fee for them. Yes. So so this is linked um, to our very good friend EPPP, Elite Player Performance mm-hmm. Plan, I think is the, the official word for it, which gives a fixed form of compensation. Now, looking into the background of Finley Lockett, um, originally, I think he was signed up by Bolton, sorry, by Burnley's Academy at the age of eight. Um, and now he's now he's at Bolton's Academy. Um, he is Bolton Wanderers' second youngest ever player. Um, very sad for him. He's just had a, a cruciate injury, oh, oh which dear. is going to put him out for the rest of the year. So oh. it looks as if um, I, I think the, the the potential move to Wolves might therefore not be taking place. Um, I think Bolton Wanderers are therefore making overtures to try to persuade him to sign a contract 
they do think he's got a lot of promise. But the way that this would work under EPPP is, is as follows. Um, Bolton are a Category 3 academy. Now, what happens is that you get a fixed amount of compensation um, based on how many years you have been involved in the player's development. So between the ages of 9 and 11, it's a fixed £3,000 per year. Um, between the ages of 12 to 16, it works out as £12,500 per year if you're a Category 3. I think it goes up to 40000 a year if you're Category 1. So, so we're talking thousands rather than millions. But if that player then is signed by a Premier League club, so we, we are, let, let's nominally say we're talking about Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, if uh, if Finley Lockett signed for Wolverhampton Wanderers, Bolton Wanderers, after he'd played 10 matches for Wolves, would have got 150 grand, which, uh, you know, given, given the size of uh, you know, transfer fees in the Premier League is uh, is is very modest. Even if he went on to pay a hundred play a hundred matches, that would only rise to one point three million. So EPPP is quite controversial because when it was introduced, um, it was seen at the time as a, a take it or leave it offer from mm. the Premier League. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going back quite a few years. Quite a few clubs have closed down their academies because they feel that the costs of developing players, they're not going to recover if the player moves on to, to a more senior club um, because uh, the levels of compensation are, are inadequate. So it, it's a very sensitive issue, and, and it certainly causes uh, a lot of aggravation. And I know, you know Crystal Palace, historically, you, you've got the John Bostock issue. Um, yes. And uh, you, 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 we can understand. The EPPP was supposed to give clarity um, rather than going to an independent tribunal uh, in, in respect of the level of compensation. But it does look as if the levels are uh, certainly skewed towards the club that's doing the recruiting rather than the club that's doing the development at a young age. Mm, one of the great what-ifs, John Bostock, he was a fantastic young player. It's, it's really We were discussing this. Was, we, we're going tomorrow night to Sellers Park for the under-23 playoff final. Um, we were there last Monday for the 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 semi-final, for want of a better word, and just, yeah, it's all very, really good, talented young players. But four or five of them we will probably never see again, which is kind of heartbreaking because they yeah, they look brilliant to us, but they're not quite brilliant enough to make that level of football. Um, and, and talking of Wolves, I guess it won't be too many pods before we're talking about how much Nuno Espirito Santo's new club is paying him wherever he goes, be that Tottenham or Madrid. Simon Plum says, as an Arsenal fan, I'm used to seeing players run their contracts out and leave for free. I don't blame the club. That's very good of you, Simon. I don't blame the club because if you offer him a better contract and he refuses to sign, what can the club do? But if the trend continues of players running down contracts, will this not, in theory, drive transfer fees down as clubs will become reluctant to risk no resale value? Um, it, it's, it, it is a consideration, but what we are seeing clubs doing is that when a player reaches normally the last two years of his contract, then um, there will be the start of negotiations. And um, from, from the, the player and his representative, but also from the club's point of view, it, it, it is a game of sort of three-dimensional chess because 
if you've got two years, let's say that you're on a, a hundred grand a week and the, the club offers you with two years of your contract remaining a 50% pay rise. So that's, you're guaranteed an extra five million pounds uh, over the next two years from your existing contract. You might say, well, yeah, five million quid guaranteed is is five million quid quid in my pocket, less tax, of course. Um, the alternative is that you play hardball and and you start to to run down the contract. Now, during that period, you could suffer a loss of form. Yeah, think about Alexis Sanchez. Yeah, what happened to him? Yeah. Uh, you could have a career-ending injury. Um, you, 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 it could be that you're actually quite happy at the club. You know, you, you, your family settled there. You, you've got a good relationship with the manager and your teammates. So extending the contract could be beneficial. And whilst footballers' wages is a topic which gets an awful lot of discussion, um, it, it's not the only reason why why we work. I mean, I, I yeah. could earn a lot more money not being a teacher than I do, but I happen to enjoy what I do. So it could be that the player says, well, actually, I'm, I'm on, I've, I've got certainty here. Um, my, my family's settled what, and, and I've got the, ex, got the opportunity to stay here longer. Why not take that? Um, if, if we take a look at um, the likes of Ross Barkley, um, I think he sort of uh, il- illustrates the issue that Simon raised. Uh he, he potentially could have signed for Chelsea in August 2017 for £35 million. He was then in the last 12 months of his contract. Um, he signed six months later for £15 million. So clubs are aware of the deterioration in the value of a player uh, in that last 12 months. So that's why they are always keen to um, have players with at least two years remaining on a deal. Um, but the player is perfectly entitled to say no. Um, and then we, we just have to see how things develop. Mm. You could always uh, stay a teacher by day, Kieran, and go back to running the sex shop at night, Double Bubble, which I believe I believe is one of the products you used to sell in the sex shop. <laughs> yes, yes, 30% discount using the code word price of football. <laughs> uh, yes, but uh, sadly, no shaving products anymore. Um, yeah, uh, we now, yeah. We've been binned, haven't we? We have been binned, yes. It's slightly embarrassing being binned by a genital shaving product. Yes. It's not one of the highest points in either of our careers, really. (laughs) (laughs) Being sacked off by Manscaped. Well, that sounds wrong in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? Um, Our penultimate question comes from Samiran Colbert. Uh, Apologies if it's pronounced Samiran Colbert. Uh, There's simply no way of telling. Um, I'm a long-suffering Stoke City fan. Oh, okay, Samaran. Um, I wonder where my club sits in regards to FFP. Obviously, we have uh, very rich owners, as discussed in this pod many times, so that's not the issue. But our manager, Michael O'Neill, keeps saying he can't buy players because of financial fair play regulations. I just don't want there to be a big fat points deduction at the end of any season. Right. Uh, in terms of... Of Stoke City, when they were relegated from the Premier League, the way that financial fair play works is that you're assessed um, on a rolling three-year period. So for every year you've been in the Premier League, you're allowed to lose £35 million, and every year in the Championship, um, it's 13. So the first year in which Stoke City were in the 
in, in the championship in the EFL. Um, they were allowed to lose um, £83 million over three years. That then dropped to 61. And now in, in their third season, it's going to be 39. So that's going to be tapering down. Um, Stoke City haven't published their accounts for 2020. Now, they're not alone in that, although they, they are in a minority of clubs. But I did get hold of a copy of the Bet365 accounts who happen to own Stoke City. And in the small print there, and as you know, I, I enjoy a bit of small print on, oh, the, on a Sunday morning, it said that Stoke lost £87 million in 2020, which is you know, pretty substantial for a club that had a relatively modest performance. Um, and and Stoke also have, I think, according to my records, they've got the, the most expensive squad ever assembled in the championship, a squad oh. which cost £196 million. And I said earlier, you know, QPR's squad cost £55. Grand. Yeah. So yeah. It, it is very much um, the haves and the have-nots in that division, as it is in many divisions. Um, so the, Michael O'Neill is probably right, is that there's an awful lot of pressure um, at Stoke um, to get people out of the door before he can recruit. Um, remember that the financial fair play rules have been relaxed to a degree um, as a result of COVID, and, and that will work in, in the club's favour. Um, certainly when it was in the, the Premier League, Stoke was run, uh, was one, in my opinion, was one of the better run clubs in, in, in the Premier League. Um, but it, it's tried to effectively buy its way back into the top tier, um, and that has come at substantial cost. So um, there will be a, a major uh, a major a major emphasis this summer mm. um, at the Potteries to uh, to get players out of the club as quickly as they can. And of course, the reason you have points deduction as a sanction is. Uh, to avoid very, very rich owners just being able to pay their way out of any fine they get, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. You know, if, if you are, um, remember, the, the owner of Stoke City earns more money herself than the most expensive Premier League club in the form mm. of Manchester City. So mm. you know, it, 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 the, the fines are could, could just be swatted off if, if, you are, mm. uh, if, if you are very wealthy. Our last question, Kieran, comes from Mark Younger. And many of our dear listeners will be saying to themselves, well, we've already talked about this. We have, but I still can't quite fully grasp the answer. So I'm perfectly happy to ask Mark's question, which is with all the talk about how much the Wigan administrators get paid, who actually paid them? Right. Um, Reading the report, the self-congratulatory report forward by the Wigan administrators, they are very keen to emphasise that under normal circumstances, the administrators' remuneration would be subtracted from the value of the assets sold um, at, at the company involved. Now, if that had been the case, I, I think there would have been a genuine problem in terms of being able to pay the unsecured creditors at uh, at Wigan Athletic for 25 pence in the pound, which uh, the EFL insists upon, and, and fair play to the EFL for doing this, uh, insists upon saying, well, if you don't do that, you're, you're going to get a further 15-point deduction. 
Um, it looks as if, uh, from, from reading the small print, that there are other connected companies to Wigan Athletic and the, the administrator's pay is coming from those and other clubs connected to Al Young, the mysterious uh, owner of the club, who, who, first of all, it's never been explained the rationale he, uh, he had for buying the club. Um, and also the, the, the rationale behind putting it into administration a few weeks later. Now, mm. um, I'll explain exactly what he did to you after the show, um, but for legal reasons, I ain't putting my name on it during the show. Oh, well, don't tell me. As I'll tell, you know, I'm like, I'll tell everyone. I'll just start tweeting. <laughs> I'll start tweeting it. Uh, but uh, it's a fair question because this came up a long time ago, the first time Palace were in administration this notion of who was paying the administrators on a daily basis because there was some fairly conspicuous consumption from them. For example, the, mm. the end of season di- uh, uh, dinner dance, as it was then, still went ahead. And the, the, the administrators bought three of the top tables for quite a lot of money. And it's, it's one of those things where you think, hang on a second, where's this money come from? So, so somebody has to fund them on a daily basis. We know what happens when the club is sold and they get their... Sh- their share there, but they, they somebody needs to fund them on a daily basis, don't they? And that's that's why Mark's question is a good one, I think. Yes, I mean, you know, un, under normal circumstances, especially if uh, you know, the administrators would have a good relationship with the bank. Um, you know what what we used to do, and I, and I it's, it is a, it is a, a few years since I, I last did this type of work. Um, you would say you'd say to the bank, well, you know, this is how much it, we think it's going to cost us. Um, the the administrators often wouldn't actually. Uh, that they would they would pay from their other resources uh, for many of the things, and then right, they would okay. pay to the bank. Right. right, we've now sold all of the assets for let's say ten million. Our fee is you know half a million, and we're, we're now going to take the money. So they, they effectively sub during the course of I, I, the, uh, the administration itself. And although the the average hourly cost of running the Wigan administration is has working out, including this mysterious one-third uplift they have, again, as part of their self-congratulation, oh, look, we managed to do our day job, we can give ourselves a 30% <laughs> um, um, Clearly, the staff involved don't get anywhere near the sums which are being used. So, so, so there's a huge difference between charge-out rate and the actual cost of employment in respect of the individual's concerned. Well, thank you, Kieran, and thanks to everyone who has recently become a patron of the pod via our Patreon site, including Andrew Kinross and Seth Kirby, who says, of my extensive list of podcasts that I apparently listen to, Price of Football is the only pod I play religiously. A tremendous duo in the future, a football pub tour is needed. Don't worry, Seth, our producer guy, a.k.a. the Brian Epstein of podcasting, is way ahead of you. We will be looking to do some live shows, possibly opening for Swiss Ramble on our tour, No Sleep Till Moscow, um, <laughs> uh, and, even, <laughs> and even less sleep in Moscow. Uh, so keep an, eye, <laughs> keep an eye out for that when uh, all the restrictions are listed. And if you want to make a small contribution to our always free-to-air podcast, then go to patreon.com forward slash price of football. And if you have any questions on any aspect of football finance whatsoever, for Kieran, then it's questions at priceoffootball.com. And as ever, I shall hand you over to Siri, Alexa and Kieran to say his customary goodbye. Well, once again, folks, thanks for all the feedback. Thanks for all the support. It, it, it genuinely makes a difference to us um, knowing that, you're, that some of you, for reasons which we've never managed to fathom out, <laughs> seem to be enjoying the show. Um, 
if, if you if you could go to the Apple Podcast app and uh, give us a review, give us five stars. Apparently, according to the producer guy, it doesn't matter what you say. So uh, just feel free to uh, to talk about whatever you want. Uh, it, it, it helps us in the charts. It, it's something to do with an algorithm, and that's about as much as we know. Other than that, um, it's the last day of the football season. We're recording this. Um, but I suspect the world of football finance might be ticking over over the course of the summer. We've already got a few stories for Thursday, uh, including why why is Saudi Arabia proposing the World Cup place takes place every two years? Oh, and yeah. much, that's, much more. That's a good question. It's one I've asked myself, Kevin. All right, bye, everybody. Bye. I'm for the